0: For example, you're getting ready to go out to dinner with your spouse and you discover that he or she wants Chinese. while what you want to eat is Italian and so going to a Mexican restaurant as a compromise is probably a good thing. But there are some things you just cannot compromise with, and a hungry bear is one of them. And so if you have a gun when you meet him, then you had better use it, you had better shoot him, or you're going to end up the loser. And that's much the way it is with the church and the world. There really can be no compromise between the two. And what I mean by the world, of course, is that system of government or philosophy or way of life that sets itself up against God in contradiction to him and to his ways. And between those two things, there can be no compromise. The Bible puts it this way in Second Corinthians, "...what fellowship can light have with darkness?" The world really wants to destroy the church or anything that has to do with God. But if it can't beat us outright, it wants us to compromise. And in its own pleasant and reasonable voice, it says to the church, Why are you so rigid? Can't you budge just a little? Knowing all the while that every step the church makes is one more nail in its coffin. And, of course, we know that the mastermind behind the world and all of its uh, tactics is our age-old enemy, the devil. And the world system is ultimately under his control and works to his end. So in the long and the short of it is that compromise with the world is a deal with the devil. Now this morning what we want to do is we want to look at a church that was teetering on the edge of compromise and therefore its own destruction. And there were those within that church who had already done the deal. They were already in the bear's belly, so to speak, but not all were. Indeed, many and maybe even most were still out and walking around, but the danger was lurking there right in their own backyard. And the church I'm talking about is the church in Pergamum, which we can read about in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. And I would invite you to join me there now. Uh, Last book in the Bible, Revelation, chapter 2, where we'll be concerned with verses 12 through 17. And, of course, it is up on the screen for your benefit. So we're trying to make our way through the book of the Revelation, and we're currently looking at the seven letters to the seven churches found in these two chapters, chapters 2 and 3. And this is the third letter written to the church located in Pergamum. And what we discover here in this letter is that any church, even a good church, is not only susceptible to the attack of Satan... But it's also liable to be drawn away in compromise. For you see, the church at Pergamon was really a very good church. And we have Jesus' words on that when he says what we'll read here in verse 13. He says, "I, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. And so Jesus commends this church. It's a, really a very good church. He's been faithful to him. And that faith had been demonstrated, as the saying goes, to the third degree. First, they were faithful even though they lived in a hostile territory. You see they lived in the city of Pergamum and they had become Christians in that city and they remained in that city as witnesses to it. Now that in one sense uh, is not really unusual. It probably describes most churches down through the years but most churches don't find themselves in a place like Pergamum. Uh, Jesus described it as a place where Satan had his throne, a place where Satan lived and colloquially we would Uh, say Satan was on his own turf and he ruled. We know from history that that city had uh, a number of different temples built for several different gods, five or six of them actually, and it also had two different temples built to worship two different emperors. It would have been a smart thing to do, maybe uh, to move to another place, even if it meant leaving everything else behind. And yet, there they stay as witnesses for Christ. There are people like that in our world today, like Lena in Syria. They do the same kind of thing. Lena and her family had the chance to flee the civil war that was there. They were offered asylum by one of the Christian agencies. But she and her husband decided that they would stay so they could be witnesses for Christ. You see, they loved their Muslim neighbors. And many of those neighbors were just appalled by what the terrorists were doing. And yet the terrorists knew exactly where Lena and her family lived and They knew that Muslims were being witnessed to and that Muslims were giving their life to Jesus Christ. That anyone would stay in such a place in order to be a witness for Christ is really a testing of the first degree. And the second degree comes from the pressure that they were put under to worship other gods and to worship Caesar. And failing to worship either had its consequences, but it was the emperor worship that was was uh, the real problem for Christians. You see, you could go to the temple or not. Uh, there'd be price to pay if you didn't go, but you didn't have to. And uh, no one really paid attention to it, but everyone had to go to the altar of Caesar. And if you didn't participate, then they accused you of not being loyal to the country. And Pergamum was the official center in Asia for the worship of the Caesar. So there would have been pressure and threats and trials and punishments. And the book of Hebrews speaking of another situation records for us some for a sum of what it would have looked like for the Christians there at Pergamum. Remember those days, earlier days, after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering... Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. And you suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you yourselves knew that you had a better and lasting possession. That's testing to the second degree. Staying in a city like that that was hostile to them and during the persecution inevitably led to that testing of the third degree, martyrdom, and being put to death for your faith. And so Antipas, the faithful witness, was put to death for his faith, and still that church stood for the truth. And Lena, the woman I told you about, had to sit her children down and explain to him, to the boy and the girl, Uh, that one day men with beards and swords might come into their house and they would try to turn them from Jesus. And she had to explain that there would be blood and lots of it and maybe pain for a little while, but then they would be with Jesus. And so they are. Testing to the third degree is happening all over our world today. And the church in Pergamon had been tested to that degree and had stood the test. They had not denied the name of Jesus. They held fast to their faith. And the state, for now, was content. They were content with the killing of Antipas. The the danger still lurked, but for the moment, uh, the state's anger had been sated. And so the devil had failed with its affront or its thought, and so now he tried something more devious and more deceptive. See, the church had stood for the truth, and by standing for the truth, they could stand for it. They could stand no matter what happened. And if Satan could simply lure them away from the church, truth, they would soon give it away themselves. And as good as that church in Pergamum was, it was teetering on the edge of compromise. And Indeed, as I said, oh, some had already slipped over that edge. Uh, had moved closer to their own destruction. Not driven there by the sword, you understand, but lured there by the siren song of compromise. You see, Satan's purpose is always to destroy, destroy the church. And if he can't kill it or beat it into submission, he tries to destroy it from the inside out. His hot war of open persecution becomes a, a cold war of infiltration and So we read in verse 14, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Good church that you are, Pergamum, I have these things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. And the sexual immorality there refers to both physical and spiritual. Now what you need to know about Balaam was that he was a prophet in the Old Testament and he went astray, I mean, he really went wrong. And there was a a king back then by the name of Balak who who wanted to destroy the nation of Israel just as Satan was to destroy the church and he knew Balaam was a prophet. So he hired him and he hired him to come to where he was and to where the Israelites were and to curse them. But see, Balaam was a prophet. And so he couldn't speak against the counsel of God. And so instead of cursing them, he he blessed them three different times. From three different areas, he blessed the Israelites. to To the utter frustration of Balak, he says, Well, if you can't curse them, then don't say anything at all. But Balaam really wanted the money that Balak offered him. So he couldn't curse the Israelites. So he showed Balak how he could defeat them. All he had to do was to get them to compromise their principles, to get them to turn away from following God, and then God himself would destroy them. And that's what Balak proceeded to do, and he was successful to, to some degree, until a righteous man by the name of Phineas intervened. And you can read all about it at some point if you'd like to in Numbers chapters 22 through 25. But that's exact Satan's exact strategy here in Pergamon, get a few people in there to cause others to compromise within, with the world, and, and then the church would end up on the rubbish heap. So there were some who had held to the teaching of Balaam, and they were leading others astray, so we read in verse 15, likewise, it says, actually, the word there is better translated thus or because of this, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And we've come across them before. They're this group of people who compromised with the world. They were people who were willing to meet the world halfway. And they kept losing ground every time they met. So what were the compromises um, that the world was offering to the church there in Pergamon? Well, knowing the historical situation, we we, uh, can figure out that there were two, and we've already hinted what they might be, um, and they're really similar in nature. Uh, The first one had to do with making a living. You see, uh, for the most part in that day, if you wanted to earn a good living, you had to be a part of the trade guilds. Uh, If you weren't a part of the guild, you simply could not do business. And these guilds, Every one of them were always set up and dedicated to some Greek god. And they regularly held sacrifices to that god. And if you were a member of the guild, you had to be there. And if you weren't part of it, you, uh, you simply couldn't do business. So what did the Christians do in that situation? Well, some of them reasoned that they knew the Greek gods weren't any gods at all and so they could go to the sacrifices. It's really no big deal. And it all sounds so reasonable, doesn't it? Until we understand that that would really be like a Christian today bowing down on a Muslim prayer rug and offering prayers to Allah. There are people in our culture today that do that. It was only a few weeks ago that uh, a Muslim prayer service was held in a national cathedral in Washington, D.C., all in the name of tolerance. The other compromise was uh, similar in nature and it had to do with offering sacrifices to Caesar and of course this is one everybody had to do and it was almost certainly the refusal to do that that brought about the martyrdom of Antipas. And, uh, and again, some were reasoning this way. They were saying, um, we know Caesar isn't really a god, and so we'll just go along and get along. Now, its choice was given to Polycarp uh, in 167 AD, and Polycarp was the last living person to know any of the original disciples. In fact, he was actually a disciple of John, the guy that wrote this book and the gospel in the three letters. And uh, history records this account. It says, Polycarp was arrested on the charge of being a Christian, a member of a politically dangerous cult whose rapid growth needed to be stopped. Amidst an angry mob, the Roman proconsul took pity on this gentle old man and he urged Polycarp to proclaim Caesar is Lord if only Polycarp would make this declaration and offer just a a pinch of incense to Caesar's statue he could escape torture and death. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Everyone there would know Polycarp didn't really believe that Caesar was God. They didn't believed that Caesar was God. Only the very foolish would believe such a thing. Just do it. Just do it and you can walk away a free man. The account continues. To this Parley Carp respondent, 86 years 86 years I have served Christ and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? See, Polycarp understood to offer that pinch of incense was the same thing as denying Jesus Christ. Only Jesus is Lord. So the record concludes, stand fast in his stand for Christ. Polycarp refused to compromise his beliefs, and thus he was burned alive at the stake. Those were the compromises that the world was offering the church. And they sound reasonable, like the bear in our opening illustration, but they're just as deadly. They they point from the hard road to an easy way, from the narrow path to the broad way, from the way that Jesus walked to the way that the world goes. And so Satan had infiltrated the church with teachers who convinced others to compromise the world. He couldn't tear it down from the outside, so he would whittle away on the inside. And that was the situation in Pergamum. And so what were they to do? What was the answer? Well, the answer always, when it comes to sin, is the same. It's to abandon it. And so in the first part of verse 16, Jesus says, Repent, therefore. So you have this problem. Get rid of it turn from it. No excuses. No reasons. No hemming. No hawing repent. And and you know that picture of repentance. You're, You're going this way in your life and this way is away from God. And when God calls you to repentance it means to turn. And you go the exact opposite way and now you're heading to God. And it is always a radical operation. So it is here. You see, if the pastor and the leaders and the church turn back to God, if they repent, then what does that mean to those in the church that uh, were teaching false doctrine? What, what does it mean to those who bought into it? Well, they too would have to turn from it, and if they didn't, then they'd have to be put out of the church. And I can imagine how difficult that would be. Can't you? I, I mean, most of us don't like confrontation, do we? I mean, we go out of our way avoid it if we can. And these were people they all knew. I mean, they spent time together. They were in one another's houses. Their children played together. And you know what? They were likely the really good givers, too. They were the ones who had the good jobs and the good incomes, and times were hard enough, and so to confront the front, that might mean losing that income as well as their friendship. and And then they may even turn against them, and accuse them of not worshipping the gods or the emperor. So would be a difficult thing to do, wouldn't it? But difficult or not, it has to be done and it couldn't wait. I, I mean, it had to happen and it had to happen soon. It's not something that could be put off. The time to act was right then and it would take courage and unity and if they couldn't do it, if they couldn't act, if they couldn't find the courage, if they couldn't stand together, then then Christ would; He would deal with the situation, and if He has to act, things will go much harder, as the rest of verse sixteen indicates. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, what I want to do is make a couple of observations about this sentence. First, that word "soon" indicates that this was not a condition our Lord was willing to tolerate, but cancer had to be gotten out now. It's not a matter of biding their time. The time for action had come. And second, while the Ephesian church was in danger of losing its standing as a church because they had lost their love for God and others, that threat's not made here, the threat of removing the lampstand from its place. See, evidently there was, in spite of the problems that was going on in this church, it was a genuine love in In the part of the people that were there, the threat here is that Christ would come to the church and execute judgment. That's what that sword uh, indicates here and Third, Christ isn't going to fight against the church; he's going to fight against them, those who teach this false doctrine and those who follow it and Finally, if the church doesn't repent and Jesus has to execute judgment, it'll go much harder on. Everyone, you see, the idea uh, is uh, is inherent in that very word. Otherwise, repent. Otherwise, I'll have to come to you. And the temptation is to not do anything and just let Jesus do it. And that's not a very good strategy. I think about a father driving on a long trip with family in the car and he gets to a certain point where he says don't make me stop this car quit your fighting and if I have to uh, pull over and make it stop it's not going to be pleasant it's much better for everyone involved if those kids stop doing what they're doing much better than having dad have to pull over on the side of the road And so it is here. If the pastor and the leaders in the church take courage, they'll stand together and they'll act. And it'll become clear to everyone that the issue is about the truth. And if they don't act, then the divisions will creep in and the factions will form and some will leave hurt and some will leave in disgust and some will stay to fight and others will grieve over the conflict and then finally the church will split And the wound will fester for a time and sometimes for a very long time. But Christ will purify his church. So several years ago, a couple of years as a church, we faced some difficult situations. We had to confront three different serious issues. And and we stood together and we stood on the truth. And we followed through on what we had to do. I mean, we didn't act out of anger or animosity, and we walked, I think, in genuine humility and sorrow for the hurting. And as a result, other than those who were called to repentance and refuse, we did not lose one person or one family from this church through those trials. That's the benefit of acting and not waiting for Jesus to have to act. And that was a choice that was before the church of Pergamum. Repent or suffer the consequences. And it is a choice that many churches face. And, And that's why the invitation is made in verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's why the promises are there to encourage people to make the right choices. The rest of verse 17 and 18. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who received it. We're not going to spend any time here because we've already talked about the promises found in this section of Scripture other than to say that the feast at the wedding supper of the Lamb that awaits those who don't partake of the meals in the idol's temple will be so much better and we will all become what we were meant to be. So let's sum up what we've said uh, so far. The world, the Satan and the power behind it you know wants to destroy the church, but if it can 't do it by a direct frontal assault, either this assault has failed, or for a period of time the government offers some protection if it can 't do it that way, then it turns to compromise, and all churches are in danger of compromising truth, even a strong and faithful church like the one in pergamum that 's by the Spirit invites us to hear what he says to them. We need to stand firm, and we need to repent if we've given ground to the enemy. Otherwise, Christ himself will have to purify the church, and that process is always the harder way to go. But again, any church is susceptible to the attack. That church in Pergamum exhibited a faith that many of us can barely even imagine And So dare we think that we're not at risk. See, the Lord of compromise comes so smoothly, and it seems so reasonable. Now, I want to give you an example of how this might work in our day. You know, the church is being called to compromise in so many ways today, uh, To actually to be politically correct. And and some churches and some entire denominations, uh, at least a hierarchy of those denominations, have already sold out. They've already sold their soul to the devil. And others stand firm, calling sin for what it is, an offense to God, and it's harmful to the people who commit it and harmful to the people around them and to society. And some of the issues we face are blatant, but others are a little bit more subtle. And I want to talk about one of the more subtle ones, and I want to use it as an example to maybe illustrate how easy it is to compromise. So in in our country today, there are many elderly couples who are living together um, without being married. And, And it comes about in this way. You see, a retired man's wife dies, and he meets a woman whose husband is also gone. And they begin seeing each other, and they find a certain level of fulfillment. And and we could even say, as the, as the uh, saying goes, that uh, they fall in love. But they have a problem. See, if they marry... That woman loses part of her social security income. That all rights, uh, by all rights, really ought to be hers. And it's really all part of the marriage penalty inherited in our tax code. It really is grossly unfair. Neither of them have very much money. They're really just barely getting by and they're not always sure where their next meal might be coming from. And they know that they're just one small disaster away from being in real trouble of losing their house or of not having uh, a car if it breaks down or not having the money to pay the electric bill or the heat and so the times are tough and instead of losing that portion of the income the couple simply moves in together it's a small amount but every bit counts And, and the world says you know it's okay to do that i don't need a piece of paper to demonstrate that they love each other. It seems so reasonable, doesn't it? And we can sympathize with them, can't we? I mean, our hearts go out to people in that situation. The system is so unfair, and we even wonder why Congress doesn't do something about it. How do we tell that gentle, sweet couple that they're so happy together that they shouldn't be living together? Especially when we can't do anything ourselves to help them. And before you know it, we've compromised. When we do, when we do that, we, we, we hurt our witness to Christ. And it's so easy to do. And that couple is hurting others who might have looked up to them. And and the lost look at them, and they smile, and they say, Aren't they cute? And they're further confirmed in their own sad thinking about sin. And no one can see what Christ might have done done in their lives or in the lives of other people as they stood strong for them, and they don't see what Christ might do to provide for them. Sooner or later, one way or another, Jesus will have to deal with it. And we face things like that all the time. But we dare not compromise. If he can't beat us down, if he can't attack us frontally, he will try to lead us astray and get us to compromise. And we dare not do it. Now I, I just have this sense that I, I, I want to share kind of a closing thought. When I when I share a message like this, I I feel like I need to maybe add a kind of a balance to it in this way. You see, we Christians are are called to follow our God, and and to do that we have to really walk between two giant enemies of our faith. One of those giants we've uh, talked about this morning, and theologians call it antinomianism, and that's a fancy word for meaning simply a disregard for the standards of God. And that's what happens when someone compromises with the world. They disregard God's standards, and we have to avoid that enemy or we'll be crushed uh, in its grip. But the other enemy, uh, on the other side of the path that we uh, must walk if we're to follow God, is the enemy of legalism. And sometimes to avoid compromise, people um, find themselves on the other side of the path, and so the legalist becomes concerned uh, with uh, not just God's laws, but keeping all sorts of of roles of his own making as a measure of faith. And so someone who strays in that area would say, well, older people ought not to date anyway. They're past it. They ought not to see one another anyway. You see that happening. Even now we talk to young people sometimes. Both of those things have to be avoided. We can't become legalists, but we can't, compromise with the world. We have to walk between those two things if we're to follow God and the the Bible. The Word of God really is the only sure guide to that narrow path to the glory beyond. So the Christian life truly is a walk to glory. And sometimes it's a dance of joy and sometimes it's a trudgery through the desert. But wherever we are and along the path, we need refreshment. And God is faithful to us, and he walks that path with us. And he'll refresh our hearts as we need it. And he will guide us every step of our journey if we listen. Compromise is so easy at first. And so awful as it works its way out. That's the warning. The Church of Pergamum speaks to our world today. And to all of us here. Would you pray with me please? Father we thank you for your word. And Lord, there are, uh, I know, a lot of other things that we might have been able to talk about where um, we're tempted to compromise. Personal things, uh, matters of policy, all sorts of things like that. Lord, we know we need to look to you because we're not smart enough on our own. We depend on ourselves. We're simply going to fail. And if we keep our eyes on you, if we keep to your word, we'll find our way through this um, Through this land, Lord, uh, through this danger, through the compromise, through all the sadness, the sorrow, the horror of sin, and one day we'll find ourselves singing with the saints on that far shore of the Jordan. And we will rejoice for you and in your presence forever and ever. And we thank you for that in his name. Our Lord Jesus, in his wonderful name. Amen. Let's stand one more time. feet of Jesus, we cry holy, holy, holy. We cry holy, holy, holy. We cry, holy holy holy. We cry holy, 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 holy is the Lamb. Thanks again for coming to worship at Y Bible. Have a great week.